Welcome to Soft Strength. My name is Aisha Fakhro, and together we'll explore conversations around humanity, holistic wellness, and mental health to expand our perceptions and the way we experience the world. Guys, I'm thrilled to share this week's conversation with you. I had a very illuminating conversation with Sara Abdullah, whose work blends architecture and design. I'm such a huge fan of her take on architecture and humanizing architecture and spaces and buildings. We got to discuss the idea of finding life in what may otherwise seem lifeless, both in a literal context, in the sense of life and spaces that we think are lifeless, such as buildings, but also in terms of finding meaning and a fuel of purpose almost as we move through life after loss, especially sudden and immense and deep loss. And she ties all of that together with her personal personal experience and her very recent journey of summiting on Mount Kilimanjaro, which is the highest summit in Africa. I loved her experiences and how she weaved all these diverse experiences together to find meaning in a beautiful, coherent narrative that I thoroughly enjoyed and hope you will as well. I look forward to hearing your experiences with this episode. Here is my conversation with Sara. Really excited you joined me. Thank you for coming. Me too. Um, so just for someone who doesn't know you, your background is in architecture and design, yeah? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's in architecture and design, but what I also do is education consultancy. Okay. Um, so that's a part of a family business. So what we do is um, we work a lot with students um, and trying to sort of counsel them and find exactly what they want to do um, and sort of try to guide them the right way. So it's a lot in the humanities but also in design Mm, nice and where do you find that the two merge like humanities and design i think they merge with understanding people Mm. um i think a lot of the times because with architecture and design i think architecture is for people it's it's more about people than buildings and and structures and spaces So it's about understanding people and what are the best spaces to sort of accommodate for them for whatever needs, activities, etc. And then with education, um, you'd have to be really invested in people as well to understand them, to make sure that, you know, you are a part of their decision making process. They have to understand in order to counsel them, to guide them. But it requires a lot of sort of personal investment and a lot of emotional intelligence. I think Mm -hmm. this is where they overlap. It's really interesting that you mentioned that about architecture, because I always thought of it as a very kind of technical field, because it falls under engineering, I think, if I remember correctly. So to me, I always associated it with that kind of like technical, create a building, put things together. So I love the more humane perspective you bring to it. So that kind of started. So so yeah, I I had that even during even throughout Yani studying. Um, it was all about creating these buildings, walls, and bricks, and you know to creating those spaces and sort of structures. Um, but over time, when I started to work within the field, um, and also sort of um, Yani digress a little bit and look in like scrape the surface a little bit you start to realize that buildings are really not about the structure or the walls at all. They're spaces. And architecture isn't really about buildings either. It's those 
voids and spaces that accommodates for people and how do people populate them and how do people move around them and also it's how do they sort of respond to the mm. activities and the people around them because it's not a matter because we see them as objects isn't it so these soulless structures that are there to fulfill our humans needs mm. right Um, and a very rigid thing, yani. we need a hospital, for example, we'll take a plot of land, we'll build a hospital or, you know, a school or whatever. But really, it's about how we interact with these spaces. So what we give them and what they give us back. Mm-hmm. So um, over the years, um, I worked with a very good friend of mine, um, Shari Najab. Um, who's also an architect, he's based in Kuwait. And we came up with this um, this sort of initiative called a narrative. And it was very interesting because we kind of overlapped or we married architecture and storytelling together. Mm. And it's very rare that you kind of find that softness or we brought out the softness in architecture and we sort of made them more humane. And we thought, okay, what was the main thing that we wanted to focus on? And it was if buildings could talk. What would they say? Um, so we looked into sort of how do we how do we navigate around these in and around and those 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 spaces, cities, all of these things, all of these walls speak. Um, so we started to listen, and and what do they say? And how do we almost give the tools to these buildings to speak? And that's where the narrative and storytelling came about. And we um, we did it in the form of sort of workshops. Um, Shari really went into exhibitions as well. And to sort of bring people in to kind of say, listen, these are sort of, it's another, it's a population. Just like we are a population in a city, these buildings mm-hmm. are a population as well. And we invited people to, to listen. And, and I think it was beautiful because a lot of the times we distance ourselves from our surroundings or we kind of, a lot of the times we're on autopilot, right? Yeah. We just kind of go from point A to point B. We barely look left and right or up for mm-hmm. that matter. Um, for this was an opportunity to be attentive to our surroundings. One for us to sort of know what surrounds us. And sometimes we can sort of make the most out of it when we're aware. And another is to sort of understand that there's a lot of wealth in those spaces. And it doesn't have to be. It's not about it being pretty or ugly. Um, it's about the stories they tell over time. You know, they speak of culture, they speak of history, they speak of human interaction, they speak of change, they speak of um, being abandoned. Mm. You know, so there are so many different things that allows you to understand. Again, you understand those buildings and it leads you back to people. Another thing that we um, we did, uh, and this was a project a few years ago, Film Harraig, which was... One of the things that I really built on, I think, Harbad, it really opened my eyes to this whole, if buildings can speak. Um, there were, Mpadag obviously, is, it, it has its charm. Yeah. And it has its charm for a reason. It's kind of, uh, there's this very warm, hospitable thing about these, about Mpadag. And it's about how the streets are so closely knit. It's about the scale Um, if you walk into the streets, you find that everything is within human scale. You do, you're not sort of overwhelmed by these large structures and three, four, five-story buildings, you know. Um, if, uh, we were looking for a space, um, an abandoned space, to inject life back into it. And 
I thought when I was working on this project that we would be injecting life into a derelict space. It was the other way around. Completely. Completely. Um, And the reason for that is, so we picked a really small space. We souk al So it's the oldest souk in town. um, And one of those really old buildings. It was built in the 20s or between the 20s and 30s and totally abandoned. So we thought, you know what, why don't we make it into a little co-working space? It's open for people to come, whoever, from the neighborhood, anyone else from out. It was just an open space and everyone just can come and sort of get to know each other, relax. It's a... So you don't have to do anything there. Um, you can just relax and chill. Um, and we noticed, or it was the first time that I was in a space that so effortlessly and comfortably sort of, it, it brought people, such diverse people together and they can actually have a conversation. Mm. So you're talking about the youngest person in that space was about eight years old and the eldest you're talking about 75, 76. Um, and it was a comfortable space to accommodate both. You have the extremely sort of very sort of local down to earth people from the neighborhood that were living in um, whereas um, people from different sort of educational backgrounds societal backgrounds like all of those boundaries they just all didn't matter in that space and that was beautiful and I think it was because of that space the way that it was and where it was situated bad film havoc I think that had its charm as well so we left thinking if we were to do the same concept in another area um, in Bahrain would it be as successful and we realized it wouldn't have been yeah. and it was because of those buildings those human scale so so that's when they sort of gave back the building sort of injected life back into us um, and allowed us to sort of break these social barriers that we carry this baggage that we carry with us everywhere and it was the only space where you can just sort of leave the baggage at the door and go in and just mingle with everyone mm. That's gorgeous. I never thought of like the narrowness of streets and the height of buildings as as a player and that contributes to this. But now that you mention it, it's so true. I think a lot of why we're so disembodied as we move through cities is because it's just so out of sync with what we are and it's, I just think it's really profound. It is, it is, yeah. And you had to, and so, so one of the workshops that we did, for example, for a narrative was, um, the first actually was in Manama. Mm. So, so men, um, sort of after Bab al-Bahrain, kind yeah. of. And over there, obviously, the scale is totally different. Um, and the approach was totally different because you are out of sync. And it's, it's, there isn't this sort of warmth and connection between you and the spaces until you look for it so we went sort of looking for that connection Mm. we picked a few of the buildings scraped the surface a little bit and we realized hang on a second no Manama has a completely different identity Mm. so then we tried to look into the identity and tried to look into um there were some abandoned buildings there okay why were they abandoned Okay, that was because there were certain merchants that were here, but then moved out. Okay, so what was the reason that they moved out? Why was the direction changed? Okay, and then you look into, because Bahrain is so closely knit as well, a lot of the times it's really dependent on families or the dominant families in this area. Okay, so you look into that and then the societal sort of connections. So you, it's inevitable for you to move from this, okay, building how it looks and when was it built 
to the itty bitty details of social connections and you know who's actually related to who and who's married into who and all of that to understand dynamics of people and society and then it goes back to buildings okay now i understand the makeup of the city mm. and those are all sort of organic findings that we sort of went through yeah and and they shape the narrative of the building and, and what it ends up becoming exactly yeah. for, for this whole um yeah so for the last few years i've really focused on the humane part of spaces and i wouldn't call them buildings as such i think they're their spaces be it open or closed mm. so what i do isn't entirely just sort of architecture and and buildings and houses and villas etc it's it's experience design mm. um, and experience design really ties in a lot of things together but it's really puts the human in the center of all of the physical things that we interact with mm. be it buildings or products or you know services or whatever so when you say experience what's the first thing that comes to mind i just feel a sensory visceral feeling of totally being there in that moment exactly so it's a very it's something that you sort of see for yourself it's a, it's a collection of seeing feeling touching yeah. hearing that's a sensory experience exactly but it puts you in the middle exactly um and so that's what i've sort of decided to focus on because it's a beautiful thing and i feel like all of these surroundings sort of come back to us the mm. human the person mm. it's a very mindful take on the work you do i think it is it, that's why like in the beginning i was saying that you have to be sort of invested yeah. in people and you have to understand people yeah. as architects or designers so they all have to sort of understand the other end of the table so let's mm. say if, if in the in the driest terms you don't have to understand the client as a designer because at the end of the day he has a problem you're a designer you have to solve it this is just sort of listening even more attentively yeah um and instead of saying i'm just going to listen to you as a client i'm going to understand you as a person um and i think that's the, that's where i've sort of my little journey with my career sort of led me to mm. um and that sort of really feeds into who I've become and what I've become sort of outside of my career as well. Yeah. I want to follow that train of thought, but I'm also really um curious to hear how you experience spaces in other countries because I remember you writing about this and you know, what would it be like if buildings could speak? What would we hear? And it's it had never been something that occurred to me. And to be honest, when I walk around Bahrain, and maybe because I don't go to Bahrain a lot, I'm usually in the capital and I see the more modern buildings, It's really difficult for me to listen here, but I remember reading that and instantly being taken back to Sarajevo and Rome. I remember you mentioned that once. Yeah, these were the two cities that like really spoke to me. I in Sarajevo, the war-torn buildings and even seeing like the bullet marks in the buildings and you could see it in the people and you could see it reflected back in the building and there was something really I felt like I felt the physical pain of the people. just really by looking at their buildings and then with Rome I felt like I was just walking through a story and it didn't need to have words to it I just felt the story of what built that city into what it had become yeah. so I'm curious to hear how you experience it in other places so what you said is absolutely right Tiani and maybe you you have been sort of listening all this time but you didn't sort of give it a title you didn't know that you were listening to buildings when you were mm. traveling and listening and feeling the pain But really, you you were, and and a lot of us probably do, but maybe we just need to sort of listen closer. Um, so when I travel, and I try to do it, um, 
to try to have my fair share of traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's um, there's Genoa. Um, I visited in Italy, and mm-hmm. and I and this I remember clearly. It's probably been one of the most fascinating places that I've seen, and only because. So you have this sort of Italian sort of meandering around these streets, and some of them are larger, and some of them get smaller, and you have these piazzas, which is the where where this, you know as Rome is, the, a lot of these streets Square. all lead to these piazzas and squares, um, and these sort of huge grand buildings. But then I was thinking, so I was trying to listen attentively and to try to understand the people. Um, through the way that their cities are built. And I recall sort of going from one street to the other to the other. And it was probably the first time where I didn't, I realized that every single street I went to, there wasn't an in and out. So there wasn't a way that I sort of can come into the street and exit on Mm. the opposite side. And I just thought this is, you know, this wasn't done by accident. So then it's sort of, I didn't know the answer until I had to ask about it. So I thought, okay, well, you know, why is it that those streets have different entrances, different exits? They never sort of, there's never a linear approach. And because it's, um, it's a city on, on the coast, so they do get a lot of sort of pirates and um, mm. a lot of sort of thieves and pirates and hadifa. What they, the, the city was sort of designed in that you don't necessarily, so if they were to sort of escape, they wouldn't be able to because they wouldn't understand the city. So they'd almost be circling around the wow. place. So it would make it easier. <laughs> e. It's and, genius. Right? <laughs> and then, and, and you think, and I wouldn't have known that or I wouldn't have known how to ask the right question had I not meandered in the streets and understand it on an urban scale. Mm. Um, and, and architecture and urbanism really go hand in hand with each other. Yeah. Um, but that's when you you sort of listen to buildings and you understand little bits of, of history and little bits of culture that you can't read in a book. Uh, it's it's not knowledge that you can acquire from like the public domain. It's little details. And I think, um, you know, you always hear the devil is in the detail. And mm. really, it's it's listening and it's really listening in a very different way. It's not really listening with your ears. It's just all of your senses are intact and you're sort of being attentive to your surroundings. Mm. There's mm. a thing we do sometimes in meditation where we guide people to notice the sounds around them and then we kind of guide them to notice that they're not just hearing through their ears, that they're actually hearing the sounds drifting through their entire body. And so it becomes a truly full body sensory experience as opposed to the technical, you know, I'm hearing from my ear or I'll learn about architecture and its significance in school. And I just, I, I love how mindful it is to humanize buildings like that. It is, it, it opens this like other realm completely. Yeah, mm. and you just see things so differently now that you don't only see the surface and through your eyes and the angles and the edges you see beyond that. And I think that's what sort of makes you sort of more invested. It makes you understand. It's, it's, always, it's always like a, it's something in development yeah. all the time. Um, and I think it's, you almost, because I started to do it or I start to do it, um, start to pay attention to it more. And I think that gives you that sort of depth so if you imagine if you do something, it's, it's, it's a habit. Mm. So you do it with buildings. You'll start doing it with people and seeing them in more depth. You start doing it with your own self and what you do and how you behave and your habits. So I think it's created that depth for me. And architecture and humanizing architecture was 
almost like a, an, an entrance to finding depth in everything else that I do, kind mm. of. Mm. Um, it's, it's not your sort of linear way, but I think I, I found, I think, depth through humanizing architecture. Mm. <laughs> I love that. I was actually going to ask about that. How has that poured into the rest of your life? So um, it's, it has a lot of the time. So, so mindful is a very um, powerful, powerful word. And it's something that I've been trying to practice. And I think in, perhaps not through sort of meditation um, and, and those sort of tools that are available. But I think it's just being aware. Um, I think aware is, is a very important word. Being aware of, of our... We, we, I think we take a lot of things for granted or we sort of go with the flow a lot that we sort of lose track of what we're doing, why we're doing, mm. why we're doing things. And I think um, being that attentive and aware and mindful of what I do, I think really, really added a lot. And I think it did that, especially in sort of the last, maybe the last two years mm-hmm. um, of my life. And I think you only sort of realize how mindful you are or or not um, when you're sort of put in in situations that aren't the norm that you're not really you know you're not really used to yeah and how do you find that like in what ways is being put in situations beyond what you're familiar with and even what you're comfortable with how does that transform the the dialogue that then goes on between you and these spaces okay so um i think it's So, so this is going to sort of digress sort of from architecture yeah, into like the, the, yeah. the human part of it. So I've sort of realized, I've, I've been sort of put through challenges um, maybe in the last sort of 18 months to two, 18 months of my life that were sort of very, very unfamiliar, very foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I th- and that all sort of had to do with loss. So I um, lost... One of my closest, closest friends, um, who was also my business partner. So we started um, Dust for Experience Design together. Um, and whilst he wasn't really the architecture type, but he was um, invested in humans. He understood people. Mm. Um, and, that, and I thought that was amazing. And, and, and I think I learned a lot from him as well. So he passed away, which was extremely sudden. Mm. Um, and that sort of put me on this like whirlwind I think um, and a lot of the times where you feel I think it's very natural when you go through a traumatizing event or grief I find in that we find a way to distract ourselves yeah. or to find any form of distraction be it overworking or driving ourselves into something and it's usually work mm. and I used to do that when I deal with you know sort of hiccups you know we all get hiccups and I use work as my dealing mechanism This was the first time that I couldn't because he was work. Mm. So it was the first time I lose a friend. It was the first time I lose someone very close to me. It was the first time that I couldn't use work as a distraction. So this was, I just, I had like a system breakdown, you know, when you just kind of like, when your computer just crashes and Mm. I just felt that that just crashed. So how does one deal with something like this? So I kind of lost my way and, and I just thought, you know, I, I'm not going to work. I can't do this and I can't do that. Um, there's so many different things that I couldn't do and I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, shortly after, and I, so I didn't figure it out. Shortly after um, my father was scheduled um, for surgery, which unfortunately didn't go well. 
So six months later, my father passed away. Mm-hmm. So whilst I was still sort of dealing with that system breakdown, I had to deal with another, which was also extremely foreign. Mm-hmm. The only thing that was constant, I think, during this time was I was aware that there was a breakdown. I was aware that there was a dealing mechanism that was lacking. So I was aware of all of these things and sort of looked deeper into, okay, this is what's happening. So at least I knew the space that I was in, Mm. but it was still a work in progress as to how to deal with it. Um, I'll go on to the third event and I'll tell you about what was constant Mm. and what I was sort of aware of this whole time. Shortly after, so six For seven months after that, my boxing coach passed away, who was probably also one of the closest people to me that was a constant throughout Mm. this whole period. So again, the system kept crashing. Mm. And you think, oh my living, I was, you know, in my right state of mind, I was thinking, you know, is this for real? The one thing that was almost like a companion throughout this um, was boxing. So boxing for me was, so I've been doing it for before all of these things happened and it was a constant throughout. So that's, so boxing has been my every day for the last three years and it was my dealing mechanism or it was, it, it, it was a helping hand almost. Um, and that's why when I lost my boxing coach, it was, again, it was the same idea of how can I distract myself with work if my business partner was my work and he's just passed away. So boxing was my distraction, right? Mm. And then I reached a point again, how do I distract myself? My boxing was how the, if the one person that got me into it left. So I was just... I think I reached a point where I can't fathom. I couldn't fathom the loss. I couldn't fathom the grief. It it was much bigger than what I understood. Mm. Maybe that came as a blessing because when you don't understand things, you know, it's ignorance is bliss kind of thing. But at the same time, you're still left with this like unsurmountable burden. So over time, knowingly and unknowingly, I found boxing was sort of a, um, a way of taking that energy and using it and releasing it. Now, a lot of the times people think of boxing as a, a form of aggression or it's like a way to sort of relieve aggression. And it's not. It's a way to sort of relieve energy. And that could be positive energy. It could be negative energy. It could be any kind of energy it doesn't have to be negative so it Mm. wasn't my place to sort of say you know um you know life isn't fair and i need to go and like take it out on something i'll take it out on the pads of the punching bag you know it wasn't like that at all and i remember i was having a conversation with a very good friend of mine and i remember him saying you know that this grief and it stayed with me and he said you know this like sadness this this loss this grief it's it's an energy that's it you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be sad. It doesn't have to be depressing. It's just energy. Mm. So why don't we take it as that? So I did. And I thought each and every, it was one of the things that I sort of realized is that with each and every person that I've lost, it has left me with energy. And I tried as much as possible to turn this energy into and, and sort of channel it somewhere, you know, other than boxing, channel it into something that actually makes a difference. 
so Hassan, um, uh, my my friend and, and business partner that first passed away, he was really into, and I think a lot of people can sort of agree with me on this, he was really into charity and he was really mm. into giving and things like that. So so I took that energy and, and I, th- I felt that was his sort of message. I feel yeah. like we all sort of leave a message. So I almost took that and put it on a backpack, a permanent backpack on my bag. Mm. and said okay this is what I'm carrying this is the Hassan I'm carrying with me mm. um, and that's the energy that I'm going and I'm going to channel it through just doing good and, and charity because I think that's a lesson for me to learn and my father the same way and the, there were a wealth of lessons there so I sort of put that in my backpack as well and carry that with me and said I'm going to channel this into you know that's his message and I'm going to continue with it and a lot of the times he I think one of the main things he taught me was discipline. Mm. So you have to be disciplined, disciplined in everything that you do, you know, be it work, be it the way that you deal with things, you have to be disciplined. And I think those are one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. Um, and then when my coach passed away as well, he had a message. So I almost have this like backpack with these three things that each of them left. And it's almost, it's added a lot to me. And I felt I wouldn't go far as saying it had some someone had to leave for me to understand this lesson, but I think it would have probably taken a longer time mm. to value these lessons because we take them for granted. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty much what I did, I think. Just carry mm. these backpacks with me. Mm. Carried a lot of things, I think, with me over the last yeah. 18 months. Yeah, I'm sure. And when you refer to these backpacks, though, that sounds like a kind of positive connotation to carrying. Would you say that that's correct? Yes. In the sense... In this particular sense of and those this, backpacks. Yes, because yeah. we can carry all sorts of baggage. Mm. When I sort of, sort of gave different definitions to loss and grief and dealing with things and energy and things, and I just thought I'd like my baggage to be as light as possible. Mm. What is it that I can take from this? So it's a positive connotation to the good things that I'm carrying with yeah. me. How or at what point were you able to make that kind of meaning? Because it's beautiful that you made meaning out of each loss, that you were able to see the lesson that was meant to be delivered and were able to internalize that and absorb that and and carry it with you in the rest of your life. Was that something you were able to instantly connect to or did it take... Because I feel like at the beginning of loss, there is a bit of disorientation of like what's happening. And so... Are you aware of what kind of led you to find that meaning or did it sort of just happen over time? I think it was, it did happen over time. I think it did happen over time. And I think the the reason for that is because I feel like as as humans, we really look for meaning or we look to make sense out of things so we can understand them. So, So that was sort of my way of breaking things down for myself and to sort of if I were to compartmentalize things and to give them a label or a name, then maybe I can objectify them mm. and then deal with them. So I can give you an example of how I sort of took that on as well. Yeah. Um, so I recently um, went uh, to Kilimanjaro mm. uh, to, um, to summit, obviously. So we went to um, with a group of friends with the Journey Adventures. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of my way of almost to jumpstart the system once again. And I thought this was, you know, this is a journey that I think I should take. um, And I think it's going to put me in a lot of challenges, um, whatever they may be. And I think that is going to sort of give me that boost that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. um, Because I feel like 
over time, I've lost that attentiveness and that detail, that attention to detail. So that conversation about listening to buildings and, and understanding them and connecting and everything, I kind of lost that along the way. So when I started to walk, that's if I actually went for a walk, I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't mm-hmm. connect with my surroundings. I couldn't hear those buildings and want to know the stories and have this hunger for for wanting to know these different things. I felt that I missed that attention to detail. It's almost like when you eat something and you don't taste it, you don't mm. feel the flavor. And that's it's a little bit sad when you yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah. so, so I felt that, you know, it was necessary to go on a journey like that. So over time, um, and this was my journey of letting go mm. of some things and coming back with others. So I, I don't th- I don't believe in just letting go. I feel like just like the whole backpack idea. I feel like we still have to carry some things, mm. but they're light. Mm. So over the last sort of over this period of time, I've managed to change my social circle, and my social circle wasn't really made up of people. Um, it was made up of friends, unwanted friends maybe. Um, and these friends weren't like me and you. They were under, their names were sadness. Their names were loneliness, was depression. Those are the friends that I quiet. Those are the friends that I've made mm. over time. So whereas I associated with happiness and being outgoing and being confident and, and all of these things, I've managed to replace those sort of companions or add-ons to my personality Um, with those so when when I felt that you know it was difficult to be around people um, and to be normal when when you know uh, laughter was too difficult sadness would almost come up to me and say you know what it's easy just to be sad you know it it, it, it doesn't take effort you Mm. know why don't you just come sit with me Mm. and I think you know that sounds easy yeah it doesn't take effort. Yeah. You know, when happiness was was too exhausting because you sort of lose your way to finding the reason for happiness, you know, depression would say, listen, I can give you another way out. It's easy. Just come sit next to me. You don't have to do anything. Mm. So a lot of the times you can, it's easy to take them hand by hand as these unwanted friends and they became companions. So loneliness became a companion. Even you can be surrounded by a hundred people and you can still feel that loneliness because of this emptiness that those people left Mm. right which is so so significant so when I decided to go to Kilimanjaro I thought I will take these friends with me they're friends at the end of the day whether we like it or not friends are friends so I'll take them with me and my intention was to go on this journey um to summit Mm. and to leave those friends at the summit and say you've been companions you've given me alternatives they were easier alternatives sometimes it's sometimes loneliness is what I needed maybe but I think this is time to part ways so I kind of left them and rekindled almost with my old friends that I lost touch with which were confidence because I lost a lot of that along the way um this just laughter for no reason you know we don't have to laugh for it just being silly just being normal so those are the kind of friends that I wanted to come back to and over this journey alhamdulillah I 
I think I've achieved that. I think I've sort of come back with those friends and and got back in touch. Yeah. Um. And and it was it was challenging. It was beautiful. It was, I I um was more aware and more attentive as well during this trip. So, you start to realize the little details, and I I sort of put back together this humane part of design during this trip which I feel like I've lost along the way. So I was looking into design, um, but it, was, it wasn't design of buildings and, and spaces. It was design of nature. And this journey in Kilimanjaro, it's almost like every single day you're at a different continent. SubhanAllah, like the, the different landscapes that you see every single day is completely different. Mm-hmm. One day you're in a forest, the next day you're in a desert. How that's possible. Even after having seen it, I still feel... I'm still sort of taken I can't fathom as to how that's possible mm. so I thought of design and these little things and I thought yani, subhanallah yani, God, God is is, an, is is a designer and I started to realize the human body and how it sort of adapts and it has to be resilient and I just thought this is the best form of design mm. so then you sort of I sort of started to listen and listen to everything around me listen to myself listen to my body as well during this time so I sort of gained back that depth I think after this trip Mm. as you were talking about nature's design and the human body's design I couldn't help but think of the verse and there's something really profound about being able to connect to that design of nature and and to, to the way we're designed as a sign and as a way to bring us home into ourselves it definitely keeps you grounded. Yes, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. It keeps you grounded. And I think it gives you this awareness and this sort of you being connected is we use that word a lot, I feel, is connection, connection. But I think it's experiencing that connection. You have to be sort of at one with your surroundings. You have to be sort of grounded. And I think definitely, I, I actually felt that throughout this this so we were on the mountain for seven days and you experience that on a minute-to-minute basis the whole journey but it's it pours so much into you that you sort of unintentionally let go of all of the things that really don't matter and you sort of really focus on the bigger picture a lot another thing that i used to say Oh, I'm going to focus on the bigger picture. But I really didn't know what that actually meant until yeah. I was sort of ex- had this experience to understand what is the bigger picture. That mm. makes any sense. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I had a bigger picture experience about a year ago in Florence. Um, okay. I was there with my cousin and we were there for a day trip. And we asked one of the waiters, where do you feel like we have to go? What is one place in um, in Florence that we shouldn't miss? And he said, go to the Duomo. So it's like the top of the cathedral there, the tallest, I believe the tallest building in the city. And so, and we had no idea what we were signing up for. We bought the tickets, walked in, climbed like two sets of stairs, and then thought, why aren't we there yet? What's going on? Why are the stairs continuing? At some point, my cousin gave up and like sat down on the floor <laughs> and said, that's it. I'm not going. I don't care that we paid for this. And it was so intense that I was just hysterically laughing because I was carrying heavy shopping bags. I was exhausted. My legs were giving up. And it was so ridiculous that I could either break down or laugh. And so I just laughed. 
my way up to the top. I saw it. My cousin eventually joined me. And at the top of that building, what really blew my mind was, A, the sun was setting. And I looked down at the city and there were all these tiny buildings and houses and apartments. And I could see these like tiny miniature ant-like figures, you know, like hanging their laundry on their balcony and then someone riding a bike at the street and you can barely see them, they're like tiny dots. And I couldn't help but think, when we're that person in that moment, whatever we're experiencing feels so immense. But then when you zoom out and you have that bigger picture perspective that you just talked about, it's like, oh wow, there really is a bigger, a greater plan than all of us can fathom. And I can only imagine what it was like for you on top of an actual mountain. I mean, I was on top of a building. It must be nothing <laughs> compared to being in the middle of nature and on, at the highest summit in Africa. What was that like for you? Indescribable. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And it, it was that, Yanni. SubhanAllah, this, this journey, although it was like this hiking, physical, adventurous journey, but for me, it was extremely spiritual. So I felt, so I would compare this feeling to a very similar feeling if I were to go to Mecca. It's that kind of level of spirituality wow. um, that I felt because everything, and, and this is, I mean, yani as, as a believer also, yani and, and, and a Muslim, I feel you do have to look into nature to sort of ground your belief in, in God. I don't think it's a matter of um, it's just believing in God and praying and, and you know, and thinking, Alhamdulillah, I have everything and I have my two arms and two legs and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. No, it's really about understanding God's creations. And then also, you know, you're absolutely right that that person on the bike or imagine if he was fixing his bike and that's his only mode of transportation and oh my living, how am I going to get to work? How am I going to pick up my kids? If I have this like little basket on the side mm. and you think that's so huge. But when you're on that, like on that um, top of a building, it really doesn't. You think it's so insignificant. Mm. And that's exactly the same way that I've sort of felt on that mountain. Subhanallah, you feel like you feel so insignificant, but so significant at the same time. You feel like, you know, why do we sort of hold back on so many things when there's just so much beauty, there's so much energy, there's so much of everything here, you know? And you just mm-hmm. think we fi- we kind of sort of hold ourselves back a lot. You also sort of look into how things take their course, right? Because nature, it, it does take its course. It's, you know, it, it sort of does what it does and it flows and, and there isn't a system, there isn't anyone managing it, there isn't how it just flows and that's how our lives are a lot of the times we sort of take too much control and when things go out of control going back to loss that is out of control we just think oh like what am I going to do and how am I going to gain back control yeah and then this course sort of taught me or grounded this feeling in me because we already done and I didn't tell I could right so and you know we do our best but at the end of the day the final say goes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's mm. not ours. And this kind of, and we know that. We're taught that. We learn it. We believe it. We practice it. But when you see it in scale, when, you, when you're on this mountain and you see the scale of everything around you, it, it cements that idea that yeah. 
everything will take its course, be it you were there or not, things will take their course and they will happen as intended. Mm. Um, and you just have to go with emotions and kind of accept it. And there's a, there's a beauty in that. And it sort of did help with acceptance of, you know, we can say we accept the things that happen to us, but we can almost also ruffle about it and be angry about it and be mm. hard. But we accept, we say we accept it, but at the end of the day, we, we behave otherwise sometimes. Mm. Being on that mountain kind of, inshallah, and I hope this sort of stays, that Mm. just accept it. Yes, you're allowed to have feelings towards Mm. it, but accept it and go with emotions. Mm. What do you think those unwanted friends taught you? What were the biggest lessons and gifts you think they gave you? Perspective. Mm. They gave me perspective. And primarily, I feel one of the things that really sort of came to mind when you first asked that, understanding people even more. Mm. Um, and I think, Yani, Anna, I'm a true believer in that. Nas nas. Yeah. That people are made for people, right? And I think it's, we only relate to people that are similar to us, I think. Relate. We can say we can understand people to the best of our abilities. But not necessarily we can relate to everyone, right? And everyone has a story. And I think to, for the longest time, I've related to a certain category of people, let's say, um, that were similar. Mm. We, we find similarities between people. That's why we relate to, to them. These experiences almost, because they were so profound and they were so large and they were so shocking and they were so everything, it sort of allowed me to relate to that many more people. So it, it makes you it makes you understand a lot of people more. It makes you, um, we can say that we sort of understand um, grief or loss or depression or loneliness or lack of confidence. But I think that we can only relate to them if we've been through them. Mm. And that's how you can sort of connect with people that may not find the dealing mechanism that you that I may have found, for example, or, or, or someone else have found. Maybe they've lost their way and they couldn't find it or they didn't have, nobody has a manual, you mm. know, and you just kind of have to self-learn it. But it made me understand people more. Um, it made me understand that these friends, they, there's a sort of acceptance. I'd have to, and that's why I called them friends, and they were companions at the end of the day. If I were to reject them as a feeling or as this like dark cloud that's constantly surrounds me, I feel like I'll never be able to, well, never, but it would be very difficult to deal with anything that comes along the way. Mm. And things will. Things will happen. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's perspective and it's understanding, I think. It's understanding people mm. in more depth. Um, yeah. Depth was the first word that came to my mind. And I feel like these difficult experiences really give us a sense of depth. They do, they do. And I think um, it was through these sort of experiences and these friends that I felt, you know, I think it was depth to sort of understand them as or compartmentalize them or give them names, maybe, you know. And once you understand something, then you know how to deal with it. Mm. Um, but otherwise, you wouldn't know how to how to deal with it if you didn't. Yeah. And once you understand it and you label it, then you're less identified with it. 
So instead of it being you, it kind of becomes something you're dealing with, but not who you are. Yeah, which was another thing I actually struggled with. I think that these things, these losses for a long time or for since they've happened, they've identified me. Mm. I felt I felt over time I was identified by my losses. And I think that that's very negative um, because, you know, you should be identified by who you are and what you do and how you're like and the way you carry yourself and things like that. But I felt that since these things happened, they identified I was identified by my losses mm-hmm. and that was one of the things that I really wanted to get rid of. I didn't want to identify. I'm still trying to. I can't say that I've resolved everything. But I'd, I'd want to feel that I'm not identified by um, Sarah and I've lost person mm-hmm. one, two and three. I want to be identified as I used to pre these experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the depth that I kind of got was if I objectified these things and made them into things, um, then I can sort of have them, mm-hmm. carry them with me, just like the lessons that I've carried, or I can get rid of them because they're objects. Mm-hmm. They're not attached to me in any way, so I can almost you know, add on or remove. I want to go back to Summit Night for a moment because I remember you posting about it and um, it was really interesting to follow the journey and you wrote something about how difficult it was what within yourself did you feel like you had to overcome to be able to make it to the summit okay so there were a few things actually Um, so summit night and I remember the post you're talking about so summit night was the probably the one of the hardest days of my life um and it sort of it was the only time I felt that I was challenged mentally physically and emotionally all at the same time Mm. so at summit night um it was extremely tiring and you know and we left at midnight and it was really cold and the wind was really strong and and I couldn't, I couldn't help but feel sorry for myself. Yeah, that's understandable. So, <laughs> I um, after the break, uh, so we so we walk and walk and walk, and then we take a break. And when I sat down, I could just feel like these warm, silent mm. tears running down through my face, just feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. And I was just thinking, what is this like? Yeah, you know, I've got this, you know. Mm. Uh, and this is when Fajal, my friend, was saying, and you know, this is probably one of the like the, the only times that you're challenged in all three things, mentally, physically, and emotionally, all at the same time. I saw during this, on summit night, so it was a seven-hour walk uphill to the summit, I saw a weakness in me I've never seen before. And I did not like it one bit you know and you see because i you know i obviously we all i know i have weaknesses but it was a weakness i've never seen before mm. but i also at the same time found the strength in me that i've never seen before and i feel like it's only things like that that actually it's only situations like that that bring out these sort of this oxymoron kind yeah. of so I, I felt that this whole sort of awareness of my mind and my body. So there were some times that I felt 
my body was kind of giving up on me because it was too tired and sad mm-hmm. <laughs> for the because it was so windy. So so my mind would take over and you know and tell and tell me you know you've made it this far. You're on your sixth day at sun at night. You've been walking for hours and hours on end. You can do this. And then when my mind just thought seriously, like it's time to like take a break, my mm-hmm. body would just keep going and it would do its own thing. So they would sort of complement each other. Um, and I think I think there was there was a beauty in that. But it really, obviously, when I got to the summit, I just thought I did it, done time to go down yeah so so i thought i would like bask in this like amazing you know summit and everything but i realized that i've been basking at god's creations from like day one mm. so when i got to the summit i was like i'm just ready to go down but um but yeah but this weakness of so i didn't allow myself to say one thing and that's one thing was and i and i didn't say it and i'm glad i didn't I didn't want to think it either was why am I here why am I doing this to myself mm. because I feel that was going to take the beauty and the joy out of the journey so I didn't allow myself to say it and I didn't even think it mm. but I couldn't help feel lost and tired but there was also a great trust and that's where the mind and body kind of collaborated mm. um, and it's beautiful to see that collaboration because a lot of the times we find them as two separate entities. Yeah. And they collaborated in a way that from day one, I said I was going to go and I wasn't going to have any medical interventions in terms of dealing with altitude sickness. So I just thought to myself, before traveling, I just thought, I'm not going to take anything. I'm going to trust that my body will adapt to the best of its ability. And every single day, I thought to myself, my body will adapt to the best of its ability. If I go through altitude, if I do get altitude sickness, then I'll just go through the motions and deal with it. My body, this whole design, self-sustaining mechanism is going to work. And that's exactly what I did. And I trusted my body. And it gave me exactly what I asked for. So it kind of adapted. There was a resilience in it. They, it kind of went through the motions. And alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, I'd say I kind of, adapted quite well mm. up to the summit so it's that it's that trust that you have it's that connection where your mind tells your body and your body says okay yes we'll do it let's do it together it's that understanding that your body is designed in such a beautiful way that it won't let you down and this is what i sort of i trusted my body in a way that i said you know you have to deal with this <laughs> as much as me my mind has to deal with it so um, and it and it did, mm. and I think there's there's such a beauty in that. Mm. Do, are there any distinctive moments where you could hear your body kind of communicating with you? Because I know you're big on buildings that speak. My job is the body, so I'm yeah. huge on when the body speaks and communicates. Do you ever feel like there were specific moments where you could feel your body kind of just going, you know, we've got this, or whatever it is that it communicated? Yes, twice. Two very short stories. One of the times was I was, um, um, I think it was on day four, I think, and there were these huge rocks and they were very, um, they were at a, quite an incline and they're very, very smooth. And you had to climb. By climb, I mean walk, actually, because you couldn't hang on to anything mm. for your arms to support you. So you couldn't pull yourself up. You had to walk at such an incline and such a smooth surface 
So I'm looking at the surface, I'm looking at the way that it sort of inclines upwards, and I'm looking at the sort of the edgy rocks and the edges behind me, and I'm thinking, this is not physically possible. Mm. This is not, Sarah, no. <laughs> you know, so I heard myself, and then I, I saw yani, everyone with me, the guides, uh, my friends, they were walking with, you know, just com- which looked comfortably, which was also very perplexing. Yeah. So I thought, okay, so the human body can, <laughs> you know, and I was just thinking, is the human body capable? I don't know why I was trying to get scientific. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this. Mm. And the moment I took a step, my legs carried themselves my feet positioned themselves just perfectly on this very smooth rock and i just kept walking and i just and as i'm walking i can hear my legs saying adi it's okay i'm i'm carrying your weight and we're walking mm. so i just thought oh my god so that was one of the times where i felt like my body was speaking to me and said you know we got this um another time on summit night So with lack of oxygen, I think you're all, you're at maybe 50% oxygen. Wow. Um, I think this is what I was told. So you so you become very, very sleepy. And I think everyone on that trip was extremely sleepy during this during summit night. For some reason, it made sense to me at the time. It doesn't now. Mm. Because I was falling asleep. So my eyes were closing. It's really sleepy. And I and we couldn't stop because you can only stop at certain points. Um, so I just thought to myself. My mind was saying, okay, I'm going to shut down. So I'm going to close my eyes. But you, the body, you just keep moving. It's made sense. So I thought, okay, I'm going to close my eyes and my body is just going to keep, you know, walking. And at the same time, I I need to keep moving. And then I kind of kept walking. Obviously, a part of me was still awake. A huge part of me was still awake. Yeah. Because I think also that trust and my legs kept going, which is why it made sense to me to say, I'm going to shut my eyes, but my legs will keep walking. And I think because that's not physically possible, um, my legs kept my mind awake. Mm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So there was this like conversation that was going on between me, my mind, my legs. And, and it, it just kind of worked. In what ways do you feel like the mountain has changed you since you've been back? In so many ways. Um, I think one of the ones that we were talking about was the bigger picture. Um, mm-hmm. Another was energy. Another thing we sort of touched upon. Um, I came back with this energy, this feeling of being light. I've let go of some things over there. I've came back with new friends and and though all of these are changes um that it's that it's had with me and i and i'm very grateful for those changes and they're all positive changes i can't say that i came back with one negative change and i can't say that there was one negative sort of experience throughout the whole trip even the negative was positive um and i think that perception also changed me as well because that's it goes back to that acceptance So the last day um, after coming back from summit night, um, the the morning after, we had to continue the descent. That's when I got extremely sick. So I had a fever, a really bad fever. Mm. Um, And I got the flu and I couldn't carry myself. And uh, that was extremely challenging because I thought I've summited and everything. So I did the hard part. Like, why am I not like, why can't I just finish the leg? 
but even that was positive in a way so so one of the things that they told me was that uh, we have another six hours to walk to our descent and they said you're going to walk for about an hour an hour and a half and we're going to assess you and if we felt that you aren't able to then we're going to take you down on a stretcher mm. and the moment i heard stretcher i was like no 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 no. you know i summited on my legs and i will descend on both my legs and that almost gave me that determination so even that negative i thought of was positive and that's what i came back with i got back the love for life that i lost in the last year and a half mm-hmm. because you this love for life gives you that connection with everything around you it gives yeah. you that mindfulness and gives you so many things because you have a love for everything mm-hmm. And I lost that love for life along the way. And alhamdulillah, after this trip, I've gained it back. And maybe a little bit more. with like sprinkles. Mm. <laughs> but that I think that's the most, like, uh, there are a lot of things that change. But I think that's one of the things that I, I hope will, will stick. I'm also wondering if the extra and the sprinkles came because of the challenge that came before. There's a, I don't know if it's a quote or a teaching of like, we need dark to be able to highlight light otherwise light is so blinding and so although darkness when it first comes feels dark it's what enables us to be able to see and enjoy and appreciate the lights definitely definitely you'd have to because it's it's those things it's it's when i was telling you and you find that like you find that weakness in you but mm. with that weakness comes a strength and and a, you'd have to be challenged that way because i feel like You know how you have like so many doors that you kind of unlock or almost like a game. Like if you were to play like a, I don't know, Nintendo game or how you go from level to level yeah. and unlock stage to stage. Yeah. And I feel like that's how our minds are. Yeah. Right. That you have to and each stage gets harder. But the harder it is, like the more interesting the next stage comes mm. and the more rewards or coins or whatever. I'm thinking Mario terms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's the exact same concept is that you have to sort of go through these the darkness the difficulties the challenges and the fact that there were such huge challenges to sort of get the larger rewards um for, and it's unlocking those stages because mm. if you feel and a lot of the time and i think on one of the games of mario's i feel like i kept on stopping at stage two and you think okay but there are like 20 other stages like i need to see what's happening and i think that unlocked one of the stages And then once the stage is locked, unlocked, it stays unlocked, right? Yeah. Um, so, and that's what I'm hoping that the stage would be unlocked. And it's not something that closes and opens. I want to make sure that I keep those feelings consistent, this mm. love for life, this attentiveness, this, all of these things. And then maybe with another challenge, be able to unlock another stage. Mm. But notice the key is the challenge has to come first before unlocking. It's yeah. not the other way around. Yeah. yeah. I really relate to what you said, especially when you said on summit night, you saw a weakness that you didn't want to see. Mm. For me, this has been, I think, the biggest lesson I've internalized over the past year is embracing my fragility and embracing the aspects of who I am that I'm not particularly a fan of because they're not necessarily the easiest or more, most comfortable. Yeah. But it's an embracing that fragility instead of resisting it that I've been able to feel the strongest because we are human and we we have certain fragilities. And when we resist that and try to be something we're not, it's really hard to tap into our strength. Mm-hmm. But when we can be like, yeah, it's fine, I'm fragile. 
we find, like you said, that the body adapts. It's going to take that one step after the other on that steep, uphill, smooth, you know, incline. Yeah. Because that's just what we do as humans. Exactly. And it's it's understanding. It, and it goes back to this thing of when you understand it, you can deal with it, accept it. And it's a part of you. It's a part of you. It's your companion, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but see, accepting that fragility, I think, is very important. And it's, you know, when going back to that part of that system breakdown where you don't, mm. you don't know because you don't know what you're dealing with. Yeah. But over time, now, for example, that I understand my fragility, I think I, I would know how to deal with things more. Mm. Maybe, I don't know whether you sort of relate to that yeah. or not. Yeah, oh, percent. But you understand it, but you know what to deal with. Just like when you get a flu, you know what medicine to take or you know what juice to drink. Mm. And it's the same thing. Mm. Um, Kinma, you got other symptoms. You'll sort of trial and error, troubleshoot and know how to deal with them. Mm. I was just telling my students in class this morning, we were doing a few experiments in terms of movement and sensory experiments. And I, like, I said to them, what makes a home a home is our familiarity with it. Mm. And so... It's really understanding and being familiar with all aspects of ourselves and being able to comfortably navigate that, that makes us feel at home in ourselves and in our lives. So it's not that it has to look shiny. It's not that it has to look, you know, pretty or impressive or whatever it is. It's just being familiar with it. That's actually beautiful. Yeah, it is. Because home is is how you feel it's mm. not tied to a specific space mm. the feeling of home house is the feeling of home isn't and exactly and you and you be, you're, you're able to relate to it you you know how to navigate around it you're absolutely right mm. so that concept is beautiful and home i didn't think of home as architecture as well it ties yeah, yeah, into yeah. where we started <laughs> i'm telling you i'm telling you these things yani we it's just Honestly, architecture was my way of understanding people. Mm. Um, and it, it's not about understanding buildings. It's really about understanding. Mm. But, but a lot of the oh, time, gorgeous. <laughs> you just kind of bounce back, you ping pong back between space and human, space mm. and human back and forth. And each one adds to the other. Mm. Um, and, and like I said, like our cities are populated with humans and spaces mm. equally. Yeah. Spaces that have a life to them. Yeah, spaces that have a life that we inject into them and they inject back into us. What nourishes your love and enthusiasm for life, this quality that you came back with from Kilimanjaro? What nourishes it? Um, So when I've come back, um, obviously the first thing I couldn't wait to get back to was boxing. It forever keeps me nourished um, because it's it is my companion. It's not a sport. It's a it's it's more of a friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a partner. Mm. Um, so so that kind of because you gain that physical um, energy, that confidence. So it nourishes that love for life because you have this appreciation for what you can physically do. Mm. Um, another thing, I think it's a collection of things, and I hope that I'm answering your your question correctly. Um, There's no right answer. I'm okay. very interested in how you kind of interpret it. Um, so I, I think it's when you say nourish, I'm thinking of something that you know has to be kept alive. Um, one of the things that I lost touch with um, was horse riding mm. over the last few years, two years, I think, over yeah. two years. Um, so I 
uh, got back into that since I've gone back and horse riding is like a whole story on its own it's like a love story on its own yeah. and that it brings the sensitivity and unlocks this attentiveness as well because then you're dealing with another being which is a horse which are extremely sensitive beings mm. more than humans they're such beautiful sensitive creatures so that's kind of that connection I think really sort of being able to connect with something you can't speak to I think is is something really profound so so these two things that it's it's kind of sort of investing in hobbies mm. in the most simplest terms I think because it's having this varied kind of I'd like to look at my day and think I've done something for myself I've nourished sort of my um, or accommodated for my hobbies I've um, worked and I was productive I have spent enough time with my family so I have like these ticked boxes and that's when I feel this is my love for life is having this balance mm. and also being disciplined with it I think that's that's what it is so I, I hope that you know and and I always look back to what has lacked so when you look at when you lose something or when I lost that love for life, mm. it was because it's an equation, right? So the, the result is love for life and mm. it's this plus this plus this. So yeah. then all of these things dropped off and I was and obviously, consequently, that I got love for life dropped off. So then I was thinking, okay, so what made up this equation? Mm-hmm. So I tried to, pl- tried to sort of plug those things back in. Mm. And they're really simple things. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that's what kind of nourishes mm. this love for life. So if people want to get in touch with you and maybe work with you or find out more about the work you do, how can they do that? Um, they can either get in touch with me through Instagram maybe or through email. So either I'm on sabdella A um, on Instagram or that's bydust.co if you're interested if you're interested in working with me um, and that's Dust for Experience Design. Mm-hmm. Um, by email at sada at bydust.co. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to sort of, um, you know, open to anything really, anything interesting. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for joining me. This was really, really interesting. And I found it's very inspiring and enlightening. I'm sure others will as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.